Will you open up to Luke 15 as we read the story that was just sung? This chapter, this chapter is a masterpiece. It is, uh, it is probably the most well-known story Jesus told, and I think it just behooves us to let the word speak this morning before we preach. Let's start in verse 1 of Luke chapter 15 and go all the way through the chapter. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them? So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. If you notice, it goes from a hundred sheep to ten coins down to two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went, and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And when he was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate, no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of the hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. 
And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is an amazing passage. Let's just bow and ask God to really bless the message itself. Father, help us just to consider your heart in this passage. I think we see you often, God, in the wrong way. We see you as angry. We see you as bitter sometimes even mean. And this paints a completely different picture of a father that loves us. Help us, God, to see you as you are. Help us be changed this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The title, of course, is Lost and Found. This is a very simple message. Luke is describing what it means to be lost and how desperate God is for you to be found. It's really a study of two hearts. We're going to look at the human heart, and we're going to look at the heart of the divine, of God's heart. It's also a story of a relationship. It shows us very specifically how passionate God is to be with you, to be with you. Luke begins in chapter 15, very very familiar situation. It's another encounter with Jesus and the Pharisees in verses 1 and 2, the problem is the tax collectors and sinners like flies are buzzing around Jesus and the Pharisees don't like it because in their mind the tax collectors and the sinners are a basket of deplorables in their mind. I found that idiom lately and don't know where I got it. Anyhow but the Pharisees and the the Pharisees are grumbling grumble 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 they're mad they're upset And underneath their breath, how could he grumble, grumble, grumble? Why would he? Does he not know he's touching the unclean? Grumble, grumble, grumble. Even Luke says, they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them? You don't associate with the unclean. That's what the tax collectors are. Well, as the old saying goes, what is one person's junk is another man's treasure. Sinners are not junk to Jesus. I'll say that again. Sinners aren't junk. The description Jesus gives to sinners throughout this chapter is through one word. He calls them lost. Verse 4, 6, 9, and 24, the word Jesus applies to sinners is the word lost. Now, when I say lost, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? When you hear that, when I say person's lost, what do you think about? 
I believe in Baptist circles, the word lost is Christian code for a hellbound, no good, dirty, rotten. Somebody that deserves wrath. Jonathan Edwards writes in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Wow, God really hates the sinner, doesn't he? The older I get, honestly, I, I, used, to, uh, I used to meditate on this sermon, honestly. The older I get and have really grown in knowing God, I'm not sure this is entirely accurate. I'm not sure this is exactly how he feels about people caught in sin as a spider hanging over fire. Nor do I believe it does justice to the meaning of lost. The problem, I think, in our understanding, if we were going to look at the word lost, is that Jonathan Edwards' view, and for a, for a large, what I would say, a large population of people in conservative Christian churches, lost looks at the final outcome. I think that's wrong. I think because of the singular focus just to save people from hell, many churches center everything they do on securing people with an insurance card. Get out of hell free. It's called soul winning. It's all we're about. I think it's important to see people escape from the flames. Absolutely. Is it important to be saved from hell? Yes! Yeah! Yes! A thousand times yes! But that's not the primary meaning of the word loss. Escape from hell is a wonderful and glorious byproduct of being found, but that's not the emphasis here. God didn't create us. God did not create us just so we will avoid hell and be safe. That's not our purpose. He made us for the incredible privilege of being an image bearer, to display him with our life. Now, the word lost is describing a person's present condition. What they're like right now. That's what God cares about. And I'm going to show you by using the three stories he gives. And it's going to describe for us the definition of the word lost. What he means by this. The first picture is verses 3 through 6. The sheep. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the other ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost? To the listener of Jesus' day, this is very familiar. They, this story isn't shocking. Hey, a shepherd loses a sheep all the time. It's not surprising. Why isn't it surprising? Because the animal, a sheep, has a P for a brain, is what they tell me. They're not too smart. Listen to this story. It's an actual news story. It took place in Turkey. It says, hundreds of sheep followed their leader off a cliff in eastern Turkey, plunging to their deaths this week while shepherds looked on in dismay. 400 sheep fell 16 feet to their deaths in a ravine. 
near the province of Van, but these 16 broke the fall of another 1,100 that survived. Shepherds from a nearby village neglected the flock while eating breakfast, leaving the sheep to roam free. The loss to local farmers was estimated at $74,000. As one writer commented, one sheep wandered off a cliff and 1,499 others just followed along. Can you picture it? 1,500 sheep, each walking off a cliff, one after the other. Soon they were piled so deep that the ones at the bottom were crushed and the ones on top were lying on a big, downy, soft pillow. It is completely absurd, and it tells us one important fact about sheep. They are not the smartest animals in the world, to say the least, if that's how they normally behave. What is interesting is Isaiah 53, 6 says this is who we are. Uses the same picture to describe us in our sinful condition. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Being lost in this story means a person has gone astray. Doing your own thing, thinking you know where to go but are clueless. It's like the familiar story of the man who ended up driving through the south side of Chicago at night because he refused to listen to his wife and use the map. I won't say that's my brother-in-law, but that's my brother-in-law. He's in the back seat. He wouldn't listen to my sister when we're driving at 10 o'clock at night through the south side of Chicago. We were lost not a good place to be lost. That's the point. In other words, lostness is a present tense problem. You and I have a tendency, a terrible tendency, to always think we know where we're going, arrogantly. We think we have life figured out, and we get caught up following the world over the cliffs so easily with our tastes, with our interests, with our habits, and it's killing us. The uh, second picture he gives is verse 8 and 9. It's about the coin. Or what woman, this is verse 8, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently to find it? Have you ever lost your wallet with your debit card in it, your social security card in it, your credit cards in it, your daughter's pictures in it, and you don't know where it is, and it's just like, ah, ah, where is it? It's all you think about. It consumes you. That's the picture. Have you ever met someone who always loses their keys and always seems to be running late? Has anyone seen my keys? I need them now. Do you have anybody in your family like that? I'm sure you do. Where's my keys? And you find them like, oh, oh. That's the picture of what's going on. What a relief when they are found. That's the point of lostness here. It is a present condition of being misplaced, unusable, out of reach. Actually, Romans 1 says that God has shown us himself. He's shown us what life's about, but we suppress knowledge. We don't want to know. And so because of that, our foolish thinking our thinking became foolish and dark. We don't really know why, why we're here, what we're doing. We're sort of living like we shouldn't. We're out of place. Dallas Willard in the book Renovation of the Heart sees the word lostness as 
the inability to use our image-bearing capacities in this moment. In other words, we are made for more than just escaping flames. God has a purpose for us right now. We are meant to glorify Him. We are meant to enjoy Him right now. Biblical Christianity even teaches, and this is what's interesting, eternal life begins the moment you receive the gospel. It's not something future. We live in this grace in which we now stand. Grace isn't extended until after we die. Live in it now. And in the third picture is the picture that we are all familiar with. It's the song Callie sang. It's, it's an amazing story, starting in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. He divided the property between them. That's pretty odd. Most of the time, the main property waits till the father dies, goes to the oldest son. But this father's so kind, he evenly divides the property. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. As the older son points out, probably gossip got back. He was probably living prostitutes. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. To you, that doesn't mean anything. But to a Jew... You cannot touch pigs. You become unclean. You become an outcast. You become spoiled yourself. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. It's funny, in this story, the son would rather have a life of pleasure and money than a relationship with his father to be known as a part of his father's family. He took the inheritance so he could be a man on his own. He didn't care about the legacy that his father was leaving of his farm. He just wanted to be alone. So he disavows his family, wants nothing to do with them. He's separated. Another word for separated or not being with who you belong is called alienation, being alienated, far away from. What's interesting in Colossians 1.21 Paul describes alienation, this separation from God and other people. Alienation first begins in my mind. It's a hostility in my mind. I'm hostile to the Father. I don't want to be with Him. So the broken relationship with the Father begins with us. We don't want Him in our life. And then the result of loneliness, we assign blame to Him for the loneliness. So alienation is this horrible circle of depravity that begins with us and it ends with us. I mean, look at verse 13. Verse 13, the son himself wanted to go. He gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country. He's the one that left. And then if you look at verse 18, even how he sees the father, he says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he, in his mind, thinks his dad doesn't even really want him back. If you guys just could be a slave. So in his mind, he 
is alienated because it's self-inflicted. There are so many people that hate God, and they think it's God who hates them, and it's not true. Sin does that. Sin divides and conquers and gets us to believe our own lies about God. So in the fullest sense, being lost, if we take all three pictures together, being lost is when you're cut off from his life, when you're dwelling outside of his grace, when you're separated, and you're unusable. You cannot live the way you've been designed to live. And the result is you're alone and helpless in a dark world. Sadly, just want to make a little caveat, sadly, by preaching that lostness is all we need is an insurance policy, we have produced a very thin type of salvation in the conservative church. It's a very thin type. It's not a full salvation message. I believe we've even, we've even taught a message where a person come forward, but they're still lost. Like, what in the world are you talking about? It's called positional righteousness. I'm okay with God because I checked a box in a bulletin. I went to VBS and accepted Jesus when I'm seven. I'm fine now. Are you living a fruitful life? Do you love God? Do you know him? Well, no, but I'm saved. To me, you're still lost. You're still lost. I've even met some Christians that are all about winning the lost, and they themselves don't even have the joy of the Lord to win the lost. They're just angry. You're still lost in your salvation. Sounds bizarre, but I'm telling you, it's what's killing the Christian church a lot of times. Because it's a thin salvation. If I didn't just get you saved, that's enough. No, it isn't. I need to get you found. We are meant to be found so we can finally be used. And to me, there's another hideous result of painting lostness simply as hellbound. It results in painting God only as a hate monger. He's just mad. He needs to be appeased. That's why you need to be saved, because he wants to pound you to dust. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians, to me, there's a few verses like Romans 1, um, 18 to 32. And this 2 Corinthians 4, it, it explains a whole lot about the way the world works. And this gives you inside information on the way Satan really works. This is his primary goal. It says, verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 4, in their case, meaning those who are veiled to the gospel, those who don't know the gospel, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, Satan wants to keep you away from the beauty of an incredible God. He wants you to imagine God as an angry, wrathful being, like Zeus on a mountain heaving lightning bolts at you. It's kind of like Matthew 25, 24, the guy who didn't use his one talent. The reason he didn't is he said, Master, I didn't do it because I knew you're a hard man. He's scared of him. But in Luke 15, honestly, is that the God we see? Because it's, it's going to paint a picture of his heart. Actually, what's very interesting, when Jonathan Edwards says, God abhors you, 
Jesus comes, and he is supposed to give us a picture of God in the flesh, the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his being. And Luke 19 said Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save it. It's a different heart. God is a seeker, and he's come looking, searching. And that's what Luke 15 is all about. It shows us the seeker's heart. So the first story with the sheep, when the sheep is lost, look according to verse 4, how the heart of God responds. Verse 4 says, what, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99, the open, open country, to go after one? So he's willing to risk the other ones just for that one. Holy mackerel. He is full of concern for that lost one. Zechariah 10, 2 and 3 says this. The people wandered like sheep. They are afflicted. And the reason is for a lack of a shepherd. That's why my anger is aroused. I'm hot against the foolish shepherd. I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah. And I will make them like his majestic steed in battle. So in other words, this is saying God really cares about those who are wandering and are missing and are led astray. It sure sounds a lot better. This picture of God sounds a lot better than a man holding you over a hot fire as if you're a spider. How about what is he pictured like in the coin? In verse 8, he's pictured as a woman who lights a lamp, sweeps the house, and it says she seeks diligently. This, apparently that coin is worth one day's wage. It means a lot to her. She will do anything to find it. He does, God does anything he can to rescue the person who's not living the way they were meant to live. In fact, I think he's rather confused. Why don't we want him? I think the seeker's heart can't understand why we're running. What's wrong with us? In Jeremiah 2.5, he's frustrated. He's confused with his bride. And he asks this question, and, and I've shared this one a lot. To me, this Jeremiah 2.5 really reveals God's heart. God says, what's wrong with me? What wrong did you find in me that you ran from me? What's wrong with me? The perfect being, why don't you want the perfect being? He's perfect. And then it says in Jeremiah 2.5, When you went far from me, you went after worthless things and became worthless yourself. You went after idols. Why would anyone do this? See, to me, God isn't mad. He's broken. And he's, he's frustrated. Why don't you want me? And to me, the greatest story is the prodigal son that reveals the heart of God. Especially look at verse 20. So the son, in his desperate situation in verse 18, realizes, it says it comes to his senses and he says, I'm going to go back home and I'm going to tell my dad I've sinned against heaven and before you. And you know, you don't even need to call me your son. I'll just be your slave. I'll just work for you. Verse 20 is the key. The son got up and he went to his father. 
And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. So the idea is his dad's been waiting for this. Because he's a long way off, and he even sees a speck of his son coming down the dirty, dusty road. And it, his heart leaps. And he says, says here, he ran. Well, first he had compassion. That means his heart broke, full of pity, kindness, change not angry and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him you must realize and I'm sure you've heard this when you've heard this story before you don't do this in that culture a man didn't run it was not proper but the father didn't didn't care his compassion was provoked it was aroused it's the idea of pity kindness longing to restore what was broken he can't stand it anymore he wants his son so badly he'll do anything. Uh, Hosea 11.8 describes God's heart like this. is how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. What's interesting is often we say because God's holy, he's going to come in wrath. At this point, he says, since I'm not a man, I'm not going to come in wrath. What does this mean? This means the capacity of God's love for us is beyond our imagination. It's incredible. We are so quick to give up on people. God doesn't. He's not like us. If one person offends us, Get out of here. This is our God. He's amazing. He's amazing. There's four surprises, four surprising, what I would say, facts to the story that just kind of jumped out at me. Because this is one of these stories, if you've been around the church, you've heard it forever. But there's four things that really jumped out at me. And the first one is this in 16 and 17. It's this, repentance. Repentance means change of a life. It requires action, not just consent. Look at verse 16 and 17. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, that means he realized he's in bad shape. He needs to change. That's the moment. That's the beginning of repentance. Repentance means change of mind and change of heart. And even he said, how many of my father's hired servants eat better than me? So I'm going to arise and go to my father. So he knew he was in a bad state. He knew he had to do something about it. But a lot of people just sit there in that. And here it says, verse 20, so he arose. He got up and he went. True repentance does not stop at just a change of mind. It's not just, I believe it. I, just, I believe it. Are you saved? Yeah, I believed. I went forward to the altar call. Change of, change of life requires obedience. It just does. It's the natural result. What he committed to, he did. There's so many people that give consent, but they don't give their body to what they consented to. To me, that's the biggest difference to true repentance and just words. Our church's slogan is, daring enough to believe God and then obedient enough to share. And the point is, it's hard sometimes to believe God's word. And it takes courage, takes daring. 
But if I really believe God, I mean, I really believe God, I will then be obedient. It just, it, it just will cause me to act. There's so many people say, I, yeah, I'm a Christian. Are you, are you really? Is your life any different? Second thing I would say this is that God wants, and this is amazing, he wants restoration more than you do. He wants you to have a great life more than you want it for yourself. Look at 20 to 24. 20, all this, all the son could think of is, I just, all I, I just kind of, I just want to survive. He can't, he can't dream of anything else but just survival. That's really all he wants. He just wants to survive. He says in verse 20, he's still a long way off, and he was ready to recite all of that thing I sinned against heaven against you. I don't need to be your son. I'll be your slave. He sees the Father. He says to the Father in 21, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer to be worthy called your son. That's the first half. That's where it stops because the Father instantly said to his servant, hey, get my best robe. Put it on him. Get a ring, a ring of adoption, which means you're back in. You're not disowned anymore. Ring of adoption, put on his hand. You're my son. It's a signet ring. You're my son. Come on. And then shoes on his feet and bring the fatted, calf and kill it this was my son he was dead now he's alive in the son's mind all i'm going to be is a slave and that's enough for me in god's mind that's not enough i want a full-fledged child that's what i want and that's the third thing is god wants children he doesn't want slaves he wants us fully restored he doesn't what to me is amazing is is we hang on to things so long. Like in this story, if you really look at the situation, the son shamed the father by taking the inheritance early. That was shameful. He ran away. He slept with prostitutes. He ate with pigs. Not only did that, was that disgusting for him personally, but what did it say about his family? I've seen dads whose sons made terrible decisions, and it kills them, shames them. It's disgusting. How could the father let these offenses pass without, you know, a point of the finger or a, I told you so or you should have listened to me, boy? He didn't even say that. He forgot the whole thing. He didn't linger over the offenses. We do. We linger over offenses forever. Forever. We linger over other people's offenses forever. God just says, will you just forget about it already? You're my son. You were dead. Now you're alive. Let's get on with life. Let's enjoy it. Let's enjoy it. Wow. This is a problem that the son had. The older son didn't like this. He didn't like it at all. Look at 25 to 30. So the older son, when the son was coming, the younger son was coming home. He was out working, and he's out there working. He comes home to music and dancing. Man, he's out there with grubby hands, and he comes home, and there's a party going on without him. Man. So he called one of his servants. He goes, what's going on? Well, your brother, you know your brother? He's come home, and your dad's happy. What? It says... It says in verse 28, 
he was so mad, he refused to join the party. He didn't want to go back in. I'm not going in there. No way. His father came out and entreated him. This father's kind. He's like, son. That word entreat means he's trying to talk kindly to his son. But his son said, look at this. I served you all these years like he has no respect for his dad. Never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat. Might celebrate with my friends. And this son of yours, not my brother, it's son of yours. He slept with prostitutes. That's what I hear. Slept with prostitutes. Stole all your, just ruined all your property. What a waste. And then he said to him, son, you're always with me. It's funny, Joel Green, the commentator, writes, in spite of appearances, the older son has been living in alienation from his father as well. Though he has been living in the role of a son, he's been acting like he's a hired man. I've been working all these years for you. A hired person believes he deserves wages. Then on the other side, you have the younger son who was willing to just be a hired slave. But yet he was the one that was adopted back as a son. In other words, the elder son is acting as a day laborer in verse 29, insisting on things he deserves. But he's missing what he already had. Verse 31, son, you've been with me. As if that's all you need. Being with God is it. That's the goal. God doesn't want workers. He doesn't want church attenders. God doesn't care how you dress. He doesn't. God doesn't care how much you tithe to prove you're better than other tithers. He's not looking for day workers, wage, earning wages. He's looking for sons and daughters. John 15, 15. Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants or slaves. I, servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I heard from my father, I told you about. I made known to you. We have intimacy. We're together. And then the final thing that just shocks me. I mean, this you really want the theme of this passage. This shocks me. God wants to celebrate. He wants to celebrate. He does. I could ask it like this. What is, according to verse 32, what is, according to verse 32, the condition the father asks the older son in order to be restored back? What is the condition the father is asking of the older son for him to be restored back, not be alienated anymore, to work harder, caught in the field more? To do more work, be a better son, do more, work harder. We don't pound doors enough. We're not doing enough as a church. What are we doing as a church? Um, it says in verse 32, it was fitting. That means, fitting means it was proper to celebrate and be glad. That's power. It's proper to celebrate and be glad. Why? Because your brother was dead, man. He's alive. He's alive. 
If there was one theme in this whole chapter to rejoice, Pharisees grumble. They grumble while God reaches out to the lost. Pharisees grumble, but we are to rejoice when a sinner comes to Christ. The shepherd who found his sheep rejoiced. The lady who found her coin called her neighbors and rejoiced. The angels who see a sinner brought back to God rejoice. The father has a party for his son who was once dead and is alive. Why do we make Christianity such a drag? We were dead. Now we're alive. We're alive. Sometimes I feel like when I, when I come in here, you better do it the right way. Better do everything the right way. I was a dead man. I often tell people before I was saved, I, I went to this church before I saved, and, I, and I, the truth is I was a rugby-playing bartender. I was a fool. That church wouldn't even look at me. Like they're kind of scared of me a little bit. Then when I get saved, now they want to tell me what to do, how to dress, how to cut my hair, how to behave. <laughs> Aren't you happy that I'm your brother? It's, a diff- it, it's different. We, we were dead. But Chris, it's so hard for me to believe God that he still loves me when I keep doing the same things. If you knew me, you'd have a hard time wanting me. If that's how you feel, like you can't understand why you keep doing the same things. I want you to ask yourself this question. Is this verse true? Romans 8.1. Listen to Romans 8.1. I'll go very slow. But you, belief means I really take this in. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you a grumbling older brother? Do you want to be restored if you are? then you must do one thing that's fitting, and that's celebrate. As Jared and the praise team comes up, I want to tell you a final story. This, You might have heard this story, and it's again, it's a story of my dad, Boyd. Boyd gives me permission to tell stories of my dad. This is my favorite story of my dad, because I can't tell you how this has changed my life as I meditate on it. I'm the youngest of six kids. I've got four older sisters and an older brother. My dad was a traveling salesman. In 1977, he sold air conditioners, to people in Minnesota, Wisconsin, North Dakota, South Dakota. And in the 1970s, around 76, 77, it was a very depressed economy. It's when you had high interest rates. It was, inflation was high. It was bad. I can remember hearing, as a little kid, my mom and dad talking about, ooh, it's tight. Money's tight. Just remember my dad saying that. Ooh, it's, I don't know if I'm going to make my quota this month. Ooh, I just remember that as a little kid. Thinking of my, you know, your stomach sinks. Like, oh, is dad, are we going to die? You, know, you get those, you know, you ever, what I, have you ever looked at those FDR pictures that they show you like in the fifth grade social studies and these people are out in the tents and it's dusty and it's like, is that what's going to happen to us? We're going to have cans and we're going to have to do tap dancing for people. I used to have terror. I have a terribly imaginative mind. It was August 28th. It was my birthday, Sunday. Never forget it. Sorry, will you stop this, Becky, when you're up here? It was my birthday. My dad called me up early in the morning, like 7 in the morning. Chris, come here. I can remember my dad had a cup of coffee, and I was on the driveway. 
goes, open the garage door. So I opened up the garage door, and it was a Schwinn banana seat bike with chopper handlebars. Boy, no, man, this is 70s. I was, I, was, I was young. I was born in 66. I was like, I was 11. It's young. That was cool when you were 11. You remember those bikes. It was a cool blue. You know where you set up ramps and you jump over the ramp? I was so excited. But I, in my mind, I just kept thinking, my dad can't afford this. My dad can't afford this. I'm like, Dad, I don't deserve it. Dad, I, I can't take that from you. My dad looked at me and goes, Chris, it's your birthday. Dad, I, I don't deserve that. Chris, ride the bike. But, Dad, no buts. Chris, do you want to make me happy? Because I'm angry right now. Yeah, ride the bike. It's your bike. Ride the bike. Salvation, do we deserve it? No, but we're his children. He wants us to have it. Ride the bike. You can't earn it. He'll be okay with how much it costs. He's all right with the payment. Just ride the bike. Enjoy.